We've been ministering the last several weeks on the attributes of God. And the primary focus has been on God's moral attributes, His holiness, righteousness, justice. And then we were ministering on God's grace, God's mercy. And I'd like to back up just a little bit and talk about God's grace and mercy and tie in another attribute into this study, and that is God's love. We only have a few more that I would like to minister on, but I think it's important to to tie these three things together. God's grace is God's unmerited favor toward undeserving sinners. That's the main thrust of God's grace. John 1.17, I didn't tell you to turn to a scripture, but if you were to turn to one, that would be the one you turn to. John 1.17, the Bible says, The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that grace was absent from the Old Testament. It was definitely not. But at the same time, it was not on the throne. In the New Testament, the emphasis of Jesus on the cross points to God's grace being magnified and glorified and on the throne. But God's grace, while it is his unmerited favor toward undeserving sinners, and of course the greatest manifestation of grace is salvation, grace covers all aspects of our life. It doesn't stop after we're saved. It isn't like we don't receive God's grace anymore. But in all of our life, everything that we receive from God, all of his blessings, these are gifts of grace. Grace is not just God's unmerited favor to the sinner because, well, here's just one illustration. And while we talk about this, we're using different scriptures from last week. Look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 40. We're told that Jesus walked in the grace of God. He received grace as a man when he walked upon this earth. He grew, we're told, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit. And filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Well, obviously Jesus was no sinner, so he didn't need God's grace in the sense of unmerited favor toward a sinner. But it was as a man, he walked in the grace of God, the the blessings, the power, the help, the strength, the wisdom. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every good and perfect thing that we receive from God is a gift of grace. I mean, it includes many, many things. If you look at Acts 13.43, I think this is a scripture where Paul talks about how that... Now, I'm thinking of one in 1 Corinthians 15. I don't know if I wrote it down. Maybe it's at the end. But all all of the gifts, all of the manifestations of God's grace in the Word... In Acts 13, for example, we're told that we are to continue in the grace of God after salvation. Hebrews chapter 4 speaks of coming boldly into the throne of what? Grace, that we may obtain help in time of need. Acts 20 and verse 32 speaks about the word of grace, the ministries, the gifts that we have from God. Romans 12, Ephesians 4, these are all Gifts of grace. It isn't something that we've earned. It's something, isn't something we've merited. Everything that we get from God 
as a gift of grace. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, which is what I was thinking about earlier, when Paul talks about his life as a Christian, he speaks about how that whatever he has received, it's all by grace. When you think of grace, you don't think of just in the sense of the sinner receiving mercy and forgiveness and salvation from God, but it starts us in a path after salvation to where every single thing that we receive from God, it's a gift of grace. None of us deserve it. None of us can earn it. We don't earn it by good works. We don't earn it by effort. We don't earn it by money. We don't earn it by... We don't earn it. We may have acts or uh, things that demonstrate our love toward God and being faithful and obedient to His Word, but whatever you receive from God is grace. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks about this. He says in verse 9, I am the least of the apostles, and I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Yet he was the greatest apostle, really, of all the of the apostles at that time. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, and yet listen to what he says here. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. It was the grace of God which set Paul apart on the salvation. But yet he says, as an apostle, everything that I do and every sermon that I preach and every person that I pray for and every time I pray for someone to be healed or some manifestation of the power of God coming forth in his life, he took no praise and glory unto himself because he said, basically, whatever happens in my life, it's all the grace of God. Grace is God's unmerited favor toward undeserving sinners, but yet at the same time, after a person becomes a Christian, God's grace doesn't stop. It continues on. And all of the many blessings and helps and ministries and works and so forth that come forth through our life as we're yielded unto the Holy Spirit. These are acts and gifts of grace. God's mercy is not the same as God's grace. But I'm on the wrong page. Sorry about that. No wonder you're looking at me. God's mercy is not the same as God's grace. There's a difference between the two. Exodus 33:19 talks about how that God is merciful and God is gracious. And they're both attributes. They're not the same. The attributes, how do they differ? Well, God's grace covers all the blessings from God and everything that He's given to us, as I already said. But mercy looks more toward the relieving of the misery of men. Focuses more in the area of forgiveness. I remember an old minister one time. He's gone home to be with the Lord many years ago now. But he was a real blessing. His name was Stan Hill. He was Steve's dad. And he made the statement, I'm paraphrasing because it's been so long you don't exactly remember how he phrased it. But in, in explaining the difference between God's grace and God's mercy, he said something like this. Grace is receiving something undeserved. Mercy is not receiving something which is deserved. And if you think about it, that's a good way to put it. I mean, we all were deserving 
of God's wrath and God's punishment, God's judgment, but it was His mercy that provided for us a sacrifice to whereby we could be forgiven and restored unto fellowship with Him and walk in newness of life. Psalm 136, throughout the whole psalm, and I read this last time, you might want to turn over there, I'm not going to read it all, but the whole psalm and all the verses that are here, they all conclude at the very end of that psalm with the one statement that we raised last week and talked about a little bit. And the end of the psalm, it says, well, like the beginning, O give thanks unto the Lord, for He's good, for His mercy endureth forever. And if you look at the 26 verses that are here, every single one of them at the end says, His mercy endureth forever. It's an attribute. God's mercy is something that is eternal. But it raises a question that we answer. We have to stop and think about it. If God's mercy is, is eternal, and it is God showing compassionate and kindness, and forgiveness unto sinners, are there going to be sinners forever that will be receiving God's mercy? Well, we answered that by saying no, because God's mercy is only for now and in this life. There's no mercy that's beyond the grave. Do you remember this? Turn over to Luke 16. Some of you weren't here, and I think we ought to read it. Do you remember the scripture in Luke chapter 16? Beyond the grave, there is no mercy. We don't believe in the... Catholic doctrine of purgatory that somehow a person can go on into the next life and their somehow their sins can be atoned for over in the next life and then after a period of time they can somehow get reconciled to God for eternal life after a period of time of some kind of suffering that occurs. That's nowhere to be found in the Bible. In fact, in the Word of God, God plainly states here that there is no mercy shown after the grave, after death occurs. Once death occurs, something takes place. Our body goes back to the grave. Our spirit goes back to God, which is the principle of life. And that soul, that person, that you, that individual that's in this body, they either go to be present with the Lord or they go into eternal punishment. And once that separation occurs, if that person goes into eternal punishment, or what the Bible refers to as the lake of fire, there's no mercy that is shown after that, after death has occurred. This is the story of Lazarus and the rich man. There was a certain man which was clothed in purple and fine linen, fared sumptuously every day, verse 19 of Luke 16. And it was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at the gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, the dogs, they came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died, was carried unto Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. He was in that realm of Hades, which is the realm of the dead, which Abraham's bosom is in, and, and also in the presence of Christ. But Hades just means in a different dimension, a different realm. But there's also in that different realm, that different dimension, the suffering 
toward the unrighteous, those that rejected Christ as their Savior. There's suffering there. The lake of fire will be there. And he's saying here that the rich man who was in that, in that place of suffering was crying out to God, and he said, Have mercy on me. He said it very plainly. And Abraham replied back and said, Son, remember that in thy lifetime you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. He's comforted, thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you can neither pass, neither can they which would come to thee. But he said, I pray thee therefore that thou would send him to my father's house. He was told in no uncertain terms, no, there is no mercy to be given to you now. It was available when you were alive, it's not available now. And so he said, okay, then send someone to my brothers to tell them of what's going on so that they don't come into this place of torment. Verse 28, I have five brethren that, that they may testify to them lest they come into this place of suffering and torment. And Abraham said to them, they have Moses and the prophets. They've got the scriptures. They've got the word of God. They've got the preaching of the word right now. That's it. If they don't receive that, then he says, let them hear them, otherwise it won't happen. He said, no, Father Abraham, if one went unto them from the dead, they would repent. If they saw a miracle, if they knew that someone had died and came back from the dead and told them all that was going on, then they would believe. He said, the Scriptures aren't enough. You know, maybe he'd heard all that before, and that was not enough to convict him. And Moses said unto, or Abraham said unto him, If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. God was not going to give them a miracle when he'd given them the word. He expects them to believe the word of God. But the point is, they cried out for mercy after entering into the grave, and God's mercy was not shown. So it raises questions. I know a lot of churches avoid it because they don't want to try to answer that question. But it's a part of our faith. It's something that we have to deal with as a Christian. Sometimes you'll run into it. If God is so merciful, then how can a lake of fire exist? And the Bible talks much about the lake of fire. Revelation 14 was one of those places. We read several scriptures last week. I'm just kind of rehashing, even though I don't like to do that, some of last week's sermon. But it's, it's for our good because we're going to talk about God's love in a moment. And all this will tie together, as we'll see, and, and enable, to, enable us to understand it a little better. How can a God of mercy have a place of eternal torments like the lake of fire? Well, these are three things that we mentioned last week. God's mercy, eternal punishment is an act of justice that vindicates his honor. It vindicates His holiness, His righteousness, His glory. It's an act of righteousness when He uh, permits men to suffer eternally for their sins. It's an act of equity, suffering the due rewards for sin. He would not be righteous if one man suffered for his sins and then he did not allow another to be suffer for his sins without some kind of a just reason. Of course, that just reason is the cross. Jesus suffered for us. But for God to just 
wave his hands and say, okay, I'm just going to be merciful and I won't allow you to go through any suffering. He would have to do that to all to be just. And he doesn't do that. He's not going to do that. And from the side of the redeemed, delivering them from the midst of the children of the devil is really an act of mercy on their part. Think about this for a minute. I mean, in a practical way. You work somewhere at a job. Maybe some of the people that you work with, are, they're great to work with, but there's always that one. You ever notice that? I mean, you, you would, it doesn't matter what job there is. You jump from job to job. It doesn't matter. There's always going to be one. We could call him a thorn because that's what Paul's thorn was. People. There's always going to be one thorn out there that has that kind of personality like a porcupine whereby when, you, when they rub up against you, it smarts. You're tempted to get irritated with them. It takes a lot of patience to bear with them. They're sarcastic. They're cruel. They're mean. They're arrogant. Troublemakers. Liars. Anybody ever run into anybody like that? You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. And sometimes you'll find yourself saying, Oh, Lord, please, get them out of here. If only they were gone, this job wouldn't be that bad. Please get them out of here. I worked at a place years ago where... I left one place because of the people that I had to work with so hard to be around. And not only that, I had become a Christian, and and my image had changed. I didn't want to, you know, the old Mike Green, I just didn't want to work there anymore because I was a new creation. So I went to another place. And thinking that would be awesome, biggest persecutors I ever had. And I remember crying out and sometimes saying, Lord, get rid of these people for me, please. I'd gone from the frying pan to the fire. He did, after several years, after about two or three years, all of them had gone, and I was the only one there. A new batch came in, and they weren't like the old. And in a way, you just kind of said, thank you, Jesus, for letting that person quit. Thank you, Jesus, for getting that person out of my hair. I mean, you praise God for deliverance from the trials and suffering that people were putting you through. And that same principle, at some point, church... We're going to go home. And we're not going to be surrounded with the wicked anymore. We're not going to be around the ungodly anymore. We're going to be with billions of people who love the Lord. And it's going to be a time of peace and joy and victory. And that's going to be eternity. Please, Lord, don't spoil it by letting a few people in that still have the old ways. No, it's an act of mercy on on God's part in that regard, whereby He's showing mercy unto us by delivering us from our trials and tests and adversity. Well, somebody might still argue, I just don't believe that God will cast me into hell because He is just so merciful. Well, God addresses such an attitude over in Exodus 34 and verse 7. And there are many other scriptures that we could use I'm not trying to reteach last week's message, I guess, even though it seems like I am. But listen to Exodus chapter 34. God clearly says in His Word that He will not pardon the iniquity of those that don't in their lifetime cry out to Him for mercy. If we cry out to Him for mercy, He'll show us mercy. But to be arrogant, to be proud, to be stubborn, to think that we can somehow... Please God by efforts and works and not by His grace, it's not going to happen. 
He told Moses and the children of Israel, Exodus 34, this is when Moses descended with the second set of stones, two stones, and the Ten Commandments on it. And it says, The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord God is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I mean, that's the God of the Bible. Merciful, gracious, loving, kind. But he also brings out his holiness and his righteousness and his justice. Because he goes on to say that he will in no means clear the guilty. He will in no means, there is no way that he's just going to take that person who, who has rejected Christ, who's turned his back on the offering for sin. God is not going to take that person's name and just kind of slip it under a rug somewhere so that it's never going to come up. He'd be an unjust judge to do that. You know? I mean, that'd be like you getting arrested for something, and when the docket is presented to the judge, the judge looks it over, and he sees your name down there, and he just says, he just says, well, I'm kind of a friend of that guy. I'm just going to take that and nobody's looking. Just shove it under a book or shove it under my desk pad or something and later on kind of crumple it up and stick it in my pocket, throw it away, and he'll never get called on the carpet for what he's done wrong or, or her. For the judge to do that, he'd be unjust. God is not unjust. He is not, he is not going to violate the righteous, righteousness that he established. He is going to do that which is right. And therefore, all men will face their maker, except those that are in Christ. All men will face their maker and have to answer for their sins. And that's clearly what he says here. He's a God who keeps mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will in no means clear the guilty. He will in no means make an exception, is what he's saying. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon their children and upon their children's children under the third and the fourth generation. He expressed to us that he is that God is love, God is mercy, God is grace, God is long-suffering, God is abundance, abundant in goodness, but he's also a righteous, holy, just God. And besides that, the sinner is already under God's wrath. It isn't like they're going to come under it, but there's only one way, only one way to be pleasing in God's sight, and that's to receive his Son. I don't care if it's politically acceptable today or not. It's just the way it is. And you've got to get your wishy-washy emotions and feelings out of things in this day and hour in which we're just uh, being told over and over again that just to speak out against sin is just wrong. I heard a woman the other day, and she was talking about how that any person, any minister that preaches out against homosexuality, that is a hate crime. I guess I've committed some hate crimes. And all I can say is, if I've committed some hate crimes by teaching against homosexuality, which I have, and they're online, by the way, now, if, you, if you're interested, 
I don't know. I don't know if they're in the back. They might have got sold out. But anyway, when I spoke on it, there was hatred in my heart toward that sin. Now I said in the very beginning, I said they're human beings, like we are, and they've not committed the unpardonable sin, and God's grace and mercy can touch them. But at the same time, there's no such thing as a contradiction in terms to talk about a person being a Christian and being a homosexual. If they're a new creation in Christ Jesus, they're no longer living in that abominable sin. But anyways, that's not my message this morning, but that's the attitude of the mentality of the world we live in today to whereby if you if you come out and expose sin for what it is, you criticize. Well, there's only one way to please the Lord, and that's to receive the atoning work of His Son, Jesus. And without that, there is no life. John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. All you got to do is surrender yourself to Jesus. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. That's all you got to do. Why is that so hard for the sinner? Why don't they want to do that? Because God has opened up their heart and granted them repentance. But apart from, apart from their heart being opened and them turning and receiving Christ, here's what the Scriptures say. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. And the wrath of God continues to abide upon him. That's what we believe. That's our faith. Our faith is in the Word of God. If people believe other than that, then they've just created their own religion based upon their own writings, their own teachings, their own mental beliefs. You may as well sit down and write, write your own little book and call it your own personal Bible and put your faith in that and say, my God is like this that I've recorded, and then we'll call it whatever your name is. That's your new religion. But we call ourselves Christians. Christians. And this... His Word, this Bible, this is the Word of Christ. And we put our faith in Him. And we follow Him. And He clearly said that he that believes on the Son has everlasting life. And he that does not will not see life, but the wrath of God continues to bite upon him. God will not be unjust to Himself. He shows mercy to the truly repentant but not to those who want to continue in sin. The attitude in Romans 3 and verse 8, there's a quote, says, let us do evil that good may come. It just shows how diabolically evil men really are. And such presumption God would deal with. Look at Deuteronomy 29 and verse 18. Such presumption God will clearly deal with. The attitude of thinking that I can pick and choose at whatever way I want to live and somehow still be acceptable to God, is nothing more than a deception in your mind. One of the greatest sins in the Bible, one of the greatest, one, of the, one, of the, one thing that we have to be always on guard about in the Bible is self-deception. James speaks about those that hear the word but don't do it have deceived themselves. But Deuteronomy 29 and verse 18, he's warning the children of Israel about turning back from what they knew was right. And listen to what he says. Lest there should be among you a man or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away this day from the Lord our God, 
and goes and serves the gods of the nations, lest there should be among you a root that bears gall and wormwood. And then it comes to pass that when he hears the word of this curse, that he blesses himself in his heart, and he says, I shall have peace. Though I walk in the imagination of mine own heart and add drunkenness to thirst, the Lord will not spare him. I mean, it's the attitude that says, I know what is right, but I don't care. I don't believe that God would do anything about it. Verse 20 says, the Lord will not spare him. The anger of the Lord and the jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall come upon him. God is a God that is merciful and gracious to those who ask. But to turn away and to not seek his mercy and grace and to think that it doesn't matter how I live and nothing's going to happen is really nothing more than a deception. God's love ties into all this because even though God's mercy and grace are attributes of God, separate attributes in themselves, they're still manifestations of God's love. When you take all the attributes of God, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about uh, His holiness, His righteousness, His justice, His grace, His mercy, His omniscience, omnipotence, all the things that we've discussed, in one way or another, they all relate back to either the holiness of God or the love of God. One or the other. They all relate back and forth. The Bible says that God is love. That's his nature, his attribute. First John 4, 7 and 8, the song that we sing. You remember? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and he that loveth knoweth God, and he that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. He that loveth not knows not God. You know, sometimes that just puts people on the on the offense when you find them speaking hatred, meanness, malice, bitterness, resentment towards someone, they're angry, full of spite and hatred. You say, He that loveth not knoweth not God. Oh don't, don't talk that one to me. Or a domineering husband that wants to rule his wife like a uh, dictator in a family. You know the Bible specifies several times, husbands love your wives. If you can't love your wife, the love of God abides not in you. Anyways, he says here, the two most mentioned attributes in the Bible, God's holiness and God's love, all in some way express all of the attributes in some way. His holiness requires an atonement. That word is only used one time in the New Testament, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, and it speaks of reconciliation. Without the atonement, without the work of Christ, men not receiving that are not in fellowship with God. They're aliens to God. They're enemies to God. Romans 5.5 says, When we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one peradventure will die, but peradventure for a good man, God would even dare to die. Oh, I'm butchering that. Let me read. Scarcely for a righteous man. I got a wrinkle on my page. That's the problem. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, 
Some would even dare to die. But God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And he's talking about reconciliation, and then that word atonement comes forth. And not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Literally, in the, in the Greek, the word speaks of covering. The word speaks of restoration. The word speaks of reconciliation. God's holiness requires an atonement. Reconciliation, restoration, God's love provides it. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So his holiness is one thing, his love is another. I've taught on God's love many times before. In fact, not all that long ago we had a whole series on love. And I may, I may talk about some things that we need to walk in in our personal relationship with one another here coming up shortly. But let me just in closing of the message just mention a few things in regard to God's love and then We'll go on to another attribute next week. The different terms in the Old Testament for love. There are two basic terms that are used. One is ahaba, and it speaks about how that God's love was something that was unqualified. It was something that was unconditional. It was something that was not based upon value. And this really ought to touch your heartstring. I mean, look, if you will, over to Jeremiah Chapter 31. That's not I'm, Ezekiel chapter 16. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 16. God's love isn't based on merit. This really needs to get into your heart. Not only so that you respond back to Him in thankfulness and appreciation and love. But in this world, we're going to run into a lot of people that maybe the world rejects. The world says they have no value. You know, when you're in high school, when you're in junior high school, you begin to start developing at a young age. You start putting value upon your friends. Oh, this person has value because they're a cheerleader. This young girl has value because she's the captain of the softball team. This boy, he has value because he's a football player. This boy has value because he is just awesome when it comes to baseball. And it progresses on through high school, and value begins to be placed upon things like the color of the hair, the color of the eyes, the shape of the body. You know, if you're blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and you got a figure like a Barbie doll, Man, you got value because you're beautiful. You're awesome. And everybody's just going to admire you. I mean, I can remember when I was in school years ago. Well, it hadn't been all that long. But but I remember when I was in school, they used to pass out Valentines. And I can still remember that all the cute little girls, like my granddaughters, they're all darling. And then some have great 15 great-looking grandkids it is. 
But anyways, all the cute little all the cute little girls, man, they just got piled high with all their valentines. But you look over at the fat, homely, maybe bo smelling, just you know, a wart and a blem in the wrong place, person, and they're sitting there. Is somebody going to give me one? It's an attitude that picks up in the younger and it carries right on through that people have value by their intelligence, by their money, by their looks, by their talents, by their abilities. I mean, who goes to the Humane Society and picks out the three-legged dog? You know what I'm saying? And yet God, what God's love is, is that God doesn't care about your money. And He doesn't care about what you look like. And He doesn't care about your intelligence. And He doesn't care about your influence on who you are. I mean, it's just, it's still so predominant, oftentimes, in Christianity. Some famous Hollywood person will get saved, and all of a sudden, they're just offered the pulpit. They're offered the stage. Somehow now they become some brilliant theologian or some kind of a, a person that has great godly knowledge. And why? They certainly didn't get in Hollywood. they got a long way to go, and they got a whole lot to learn. But this popular figure they want to use to draw people in. Like... God's got special love on this person. Well, God loves that person, but the ground's level at the foot of the cross, friends. God doesn't love one more than another. And it doesn't matter what you look like, and it doesn't matter about the level of your intelligence. The most, the most deformed, retarded, crippled person is loved by God just as much as the world famous evangelist. Listen to me. God doesn't love people better because of their value. Quite to the opposite. He humbled Israel one time because they got to thinking that they were something and that's why God loved them. And I love this verse. I've read it many times because he just says to them, you are nothing. God's love isn't based upon value. It's an unqualified love. He, It's not based upon conditional. It's unconditional. This is what God said about Israel. Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 6. They got to thinking they were something, and God tried to humble them and straighten them out. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, The birth of thy nativity was in the land of Canaan, in other words, you were a heathen. Thy mother was a, thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother was a Hittite. Now in America, that may not be a big deal, girl. We're all kind of Heinz 57, but that would be like saying, you know, your mother was a Syrian and your father was an Iraqi. <laughs> and you know, good stuff Jews wouldn't like that. As for thy nativity, and the day that you were born, your navel was never cut. You were never washed in water to cleanse you. You were not salted at all or swaddled at all. You know, 
Nobody picked you up. Nobody looked at you. Nobody cleaned you up. The woman that had that baby, it says she had it. She looked at it. She said, yuck. I don't want this child. Threw it out into the, out into the road to die. No, I pity thee to do any of these things unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. When thou was cast out into the open to the loathing of the person in the day that you were born, and when I passed by, I saw thee, and you were polluted in your own blood. And I said when you were in your own blood, and he goes on to say they were dead. Live. Yea, I said unto thee when thou wast in thy blood, live. I caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field, and thou hast increased and waxen great, and thou art come to excellent ornaments, and thy breasts are fashioned, and thine hair is grown, whereas thou was naked and bare. And when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was a time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee, and I covered thy nakedness, and I swear unto thee, and I entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord, and thou hast become mine. And I washed thee with water, and I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil, and I clothed thee with broidered work, and I shod thee with skins, and I gird thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk, and I decked thee with ornaments, and I put bracelets on thy hands, and chains on thy neck, and a jewel on thy forehead, and earrings in your ear, and a crown upon your head. He turned her into a princess die. I mean, the world today, you know, they, Princess Diana gets killed in a car accident ten years ago, and I see now they've made a movie about it. And so you, you see these little glimpses coming on TV about, you know what happened, do you know the rest of the story? And the world just sits back and looks at this beautiful woman who was a princess, who was a royalty, lots of money, very beautiful, and they write a movie about her. And the world loves her. But that's worldly love. God doesn't love a person because of their beauty and their talents and their abilities and their riches. God loves those that, that have no value. And after he manifests his love to them, he gives them value. Stop thinking about this. This ought to humble you for a moment. And yet it really ought to do you a lot of good. If the world despises you and rejects you and laughs at you and they don't applaud you, if the world thinks you're ugly, if the world thinks you're stupid, if the world thinks that you're dirt, you know, you don't have the prosperity and the positions and so forth that they have, maybe you don't have that. I got news for you. If the whole world hates you, there's one that loves you, not because of who you are but simply because that's his nature. He's God. I'd rather be loved by God than anybody else in the world. Anybody else in the world. God's put value on me, and God's put value on you. I've got value, you've got value, and it's value in Christ. And if nobody else can see that value, it doesn't matter. Because as long as my maker gives me value, I don't care about the rest of the world. Like one old theologian said, the world is dead to me and I'm dead to the world. I mean, the Bible says when all men praise you, woe unto you. Woe. Don't seek the praises of men. Seek the praises of God. God loves us so that we in turn can be touched in our heart by His 
love and compassion and mercy and grace and turn around and manifest that then to others and fulfill the second great commandment. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And so you might be riding a bus somewhere or riding a train somewhere or you might be going somewhere and you see somebody that they just, their clothes aren't the, the most modernist of style. They just may be ugly to look at. They just may not have a wallet full of cash. But yet, God chooses to show him. He, he doesn't love somebody because of something that the world places upon them as value. He loves them, and his love upon them gives them value. That's what God's love does. And it's manifested by grace. It's manifested by mercy. In fact, the other word in the Hebrew that is sometimes translated as love is like over in Jeremiah 31 and verse 3. It literally in the Hebrew is hesed, which means mercy. In most cases, I didn't read Exodus chapter 20 and verse 6. Maybe we ought to turn it real quick because this is one verse where the two words are used. And then I'll turn over to Jeremiah 31. But in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 6 in the Ten Commandments, it says, "Thou shalt." God is telling the children of Israel, second commandment, that thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And I show mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. And the word here for mercy is the word hesed. starts with a C, but it's really more like, I believe I'm pronouncing it right, the C is silent. And then the other word of thousands of them that love me is of Ahaba and keep my commandments. And that word for mercy, Hesed, it speaks of loving kindness and mercy, compassion, and it's also translated as love. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3. I mean, we generally know automatically the Hebrew or the Greek terms in the New Testament for love with phileo and uh, agape. But in the Old Testament... There are similar terms. Jeremiah chapter 31, for example, verse 3. He said, The Lord has appeared of old unto me, saying, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, and therefore with loving kindness, hesed, have I drawn thee. Both words are used there. But it's a loving kindness, and it's a mercy, and it's a grace that he's showing. The love is a, it's a mutual love. It's a devotion. It's a faithfulness. It's a covenant love. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 that a wife is to love her husband. And Ephesians 5 and verse 8 is an admonition where God says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. It's a covenant love, a mutual love. You're to love your husband, and as your husband, you're to love your wife. In the New Testament... The terms for love are agape, are agape and phileo. Phileo is used sometimes 
to talk about brotherly love, we talk about Philadelphia and the city is the city of brotherly love. But I'd like you to look at Luke 20 and verse 46 because this is not the highest unconditional love that God wants us, wants us to walk in. It is a love that is manifested as admiration. It's, an, it's a love that is manifested as praise. And it may be all right, depending upon the person's heart. But in Luke chapter 20 and verse 46, it is the love that is based upon condition. I'll be friendly to you if you're friendly to me. I'll be kind to you if you're kind to me. If you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. You help me, and I'll help you. But if you're not going to be helpful to me, I'm not going to help you. If you're not going to be nice to me, I'm not going to be nice to you. If you're going to be mean to me, I can be mean to you. It's a love that's based on affection, emotions, and what a person receives of value back. You don't talk nice to me, then I'm not going to talk nice to you because there's no, no value. You've just mistreated me, and I'm going to mistreat you. But that's not the love that God wants us to walk in. Listen to Luke chapter 20. It's that love that I talked about of men whereby they will honor and praise and look highly of men for who they are and the value that they have. Luke 20 and verse 46 says, Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes, and they love the greetings, they love the phileo, they love the, Oh, Rabbi! Nice robe. Whoa, don't you look good today. <laughs> he says, they desire to walk in long robes. You know, they want to put on an appearance. They want to put on a show. They got the collar and the robe. And they want to appear to be to people to draw attention and praise. He says, they love the greetings in the markets and the higher seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at the feast. They love to praise the admiration of men. But he says, deep down from within, they devour widows' houses, and for a show they make long prayers, and the same shall receive the greater damnation. God doesn't look at that. What God looks at is the intent of the heart. But the love of God is something that is unconditional. Matthew 19.19, just a couple quick verses, and I'm going to close. Look at Matthew 19 and verse 19. And this New Testament love is agape. It is the same as ahaba in the Old Testament. It is loving people because we have God's nature from within. When we're born again, we receive God's nature. When we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes in and anoints us and gives us the power to live that nature. But we've got to yield to Him. And what are the fruits of the Spirit? What's the first one? Love. And what is love? Oh, love is being friendly. Love is just having warm feelings about a person. Love is just really being excited when you're with them. No. Love is patient, kind, enduring, believing. Not falsely judging. It's not easily provoked and get angry. It's being, it, it, it is manifesting the love of God to others. Matthew 19, 19. 
we're told this is the rich young ruler and when he came to Jesus and, and he said that he had done all these things. But listen to what one of the things that he mentioned in his list. Honor thy father and mother. This is what Jesus is telling him to do. And honor thy father and mother and thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And that word, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, is thou shalt unconditionally love your neighbor as yourself. You don't love them because they're nice to you. You love them in spite of them not being nice to you. You're going to find people are not deserving of your love and of your kindness. So why should I love them? Because God loved you. Why should he have loved you? Hello? How many reasons can you think of as to why that God should have loved you? I mean, after all, you know, God loved me because I've got nice hair. God loved me because I'm not over six foot tall. God loved me because I came from a rich family. Only my wife believed that before we got married. And then after we got married, she found out that wasn't true. But it was too late to take it back. And I've heard about it for 37 years, and all I can say is anymore, go to eat harmony. <laughs> we say it in jest. But no, there was nothing special. And it's the same way that we, we are commanded by God to love our neighbor as ourselves. And when the question came up was, as to who's your neighbor... Well, we're all neighbors, friends. It's the undeserving. They don't deserve. The world doesn't deserve it. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't love it. I guess the most undeserving would be your enemies, and we're told by Jesus in Matthew 5, in verse 43, You've heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Well, he said that's an old scribe, Pharisee, twisting, of the law. I've come to restore I've come to fulfill the law by giving its intent and meaning. I say unto you, love your enemy. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which use you. Should we read it again? Oh, that's not easy to live. But that's the agape kind of love. I say unto you, agape, love your enemies. Bless them which curse you and do good to them which hate you and pray for them which take advantage of you and use for you. We've got one brother here that just got taken advantage of and used in the workplace. And he's told me on a regular basis he's praying for them. That's the way it should be. You pray for them. You don't have you don't have them for dinner every night. You don't hold malice and resentment and bitterness in your heart. You pray that God will open their eyes. Wouldn't it be a blessing for some of these people that use you and take advantage of you and mistreat you? Wouldn't it be a blessing if they really got their eyes open and got saved? And occasionally that happens. They'll come to you, ask forgiveness. You don't do them any good by praying that God will just judge them and deal with them and straighten them out. In fact, if you're not careful, you'll enter into the realm of black magic, try to put curses on people. Romans 12 says, bless, bless, and curse not. We're not called upon to try to call fire down from heaven and judge our, our people that are mistreating us. We are to remember what God has done for us 
and hit our knees and say, Father, please, just as you had mercy upon me, have mercy upon them. And you pray that God will open their heart to whereby they see the need for that love. God's love is unconditional. I'm going to close. Man's love is based upon the value of the person, but God's is not. Men would not purposely look for a harlot or a drug addict or an alcoholic to marry. And I'm not saying we do that. But God entered into a marriage covenant relationship with us. And there are many stories and testimonies of the past life that people that could give. In fact, I've had to tell some people it's best just to keep that under the blood. And don't bring it up. We don't care about your past. It's over. It's forgotten. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. But God God chooses the weak and the base and the foolish. I'm going to close with one verse, 1 Corinthians one twenty six, so that none of them could glory in His presence. He chooses the weak, the base, the foolish, the nobodies of this world. And they have no value, but God gives them value. He opens their heart, gives them a new heart, and they turn and repent and walk in a new way of life. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. You see your calling, brother, now that not many wise men after the flesh, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, the base things of the world, the things which are despised. God has chosen, yea, the things which are nothing, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh should glory in its presence. But of him are you in Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. I may have been stupid when I'm young, but now I've got the wisdom of Christ. I may have had a very ungodly life, before I got saved. But now, I'm righteous and complete in Christ. He says, I'm sanctified, I'm set apart, I'm redeemed, so that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. If it wasn't for God's love, we wouldn't be anything. But God chooses the weak, base, and foolish to show his love upon them. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing on the word, we pray you, you would just touch the heartstrings of people to understand and see that they were nothing. The world may have applauded them, but in your eyes, all those were nothing more than filthy rags. Open our eyes up to see that when the world rejects and laughs at, ridicules, mocks the weak, the poor, the homely, the drug addicts, the alcoholics, the harlots. The world may reject and ridicule, stick up their noses at them, but yet this is the kind that you have shown your love to also. You told us one time in the Word where a dinner was called and all of the honorable, noble, rich, fancy were invited. And nobody showed. They were all too busy with their properties and their jobs and their family. 
And so you said, all right, go on out and get the homeless. Go on out and get those that have nothing. I don't want property owners because they're all caught up with their property. I don't want the educated because they're all caught up with their books. I don't want the rich because they're all caught up with their bank accounts. You go find those that have nothing. You draw them to my feast. And in they came. And the door was shut. You choose the weak and the base and the foolish. And why? Because your love. That is your nature. It's to love those that are not worthy of that love. Father, open our hearts to that revelation that we may appreciate it and thank you and glorify you and honor you for the precious love that you've given us. We ask that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.